I am Pastor Michael, and today we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do things a little differently. We're going to change up the format. We're going to introduce real wine. Exciting. Uh, We're going to try to vivify this meal a bit. And in preparation for that, we're going to look at this meal that Jesus has given us. And I want you to know that this is a very important Christian practice. There's a lot of rich symbolism and meaning going on here. It's, it's, I think it's infinitely deep. There's just layer upon layer that we can unearth and excavate. And today we're just going to scratch the surface. So I want you to know that. I have three points. Here's the outline. Number one. We're going to look at a meal of death. We're going to see that it's a meal of death. We're going to see it's a meal we eat. And then finally, a meal we eat together. And so with that in mind, let me read to you from Paul's epistle, his first one, to the Corinthian church, chapter 11, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, let's go to the first point. What is this meal? This meal is a ceremony that Jesus gives to his disciples so that they can remember him. So that when Jesus is no longer physically with them, they can look back and remember. Now what is remarkable is what Jesus wants them to remember. Because Jesus is giving this symbolic drama that is pointing to an event in his life. And notice, it's not a dramatization of his birth. It is not a dramatization of any of his miracles. The feeding of the 5,000, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It is not an illustration of his teachings. The Sermon on the Mount. It is not a drama of his healing ministries. But the meal is a dramatization of his death. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. Now think about that. Of all the things that Jesus wants us to remember, it's his death. And it shows us the central significance that Jesus attached to his death. So that we cannot understand the life of Jesus, his ministry, his mission, who he is, until we understand his death. This shows us the centrality of his death. Now, what does his death mean? Jesus tells us, verse 24, he says, this is my body, which is for you. Now, the word for there is a little bit ambiguous, right? And um, in the English language, the preposition for is very versatile, so it can mean a lot of different things. 
But in the Greek, in the original Greek language here, it's very clear, very precise. It's the Greek word huper. Huper means in place of, instead of. So this is saying that Jesus' death takes our place. Because it should be our death. We should be on a Roman cross. Why? Because of sin. Because we have rebelled against a holy God and so we are under the sentence of death. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. We talked about this at some length last week. And I want you to know that a lot of people find this objectionable. This whole idea of blood atonement for sin. People say it's so cruel, it's so bloodthirsty. And people really hate this idea. And they say, you know, I don't think that's how God works. I don't think he would require blood atonement for sin. The problem with that objection is why did Jesus have to die then? Why did Jesus die? Now, over the centuries, theologians have wrestled with this question and um, they've come up with alternative theories to substitutionary atonement. The most popular, the most well-known is called the moral influence theory of the atonement. The moral influence theory, it's a bit of an awkward name. Theologians are not really good at naming things. Um, But it was first conceived of by a medieval theologian named Peter Abelard. Now, Peter Abelard said, our real problem, humanity's real problem, is not the debt and the guilt that we have from sin because God has freely forgiven us. Why couldn't God forgive us unless he were somehow holding on to this grudge? No, Abelard says, our real problem is that we don't know we've been forgiven. We don't know that God loves us. We are like um, an estranged child who is in rebellion against her parents and she doesn't know that she can come back home because her parents love her. And so Abelard says the human race is trapped in fear and in shame, and so our real need is that our hearts have to be awakened. And so God sent his son to die on a Roman cross to demonstrate his love for us. Now, the problem with that explanation, and some of you can see it right away, is that would mean that Jesus' death did not accomplish any objective purpose. But it only accomplished a subjective purpose to win our hearts to God. And that doesn't make any sense. So let me give you an illustration. Suppose there's a boy and a girl walking along a river. And the boy says, let me show you how much I love you. And so he jumps into the river and he's overtaken by the waves and the currents pull him in and he perishes. Would the girl say, oh, how he loved me? No, she would say that was completely insane. What a jerk. Because that's not love. That's irrational and wicked. 
But suppose the girl falls into the river and the currents have her and her life is in danger. And the boy, without hesitation, he jumps into the river and somehow he fights against the current. He drags her to safety, but in the process, he drowns. She would say, Oh, how he loved me. He gave his life to save me. You see, there was an objective reason why Jesus died. It was to satisfy the wrath and the judgment of God for human sin. The human race was truly in danger. We were under a sentence of death. But Jesus Christ, because he loves us, sent from the Father, the Son in full agreement with the plan, Jesus Christ died. He took our place. He took the punishment that we deserve, and that is the gospel. That's the gospel. Now let me add a coda before we move on to the second point, which is um, there are basically three theories, three major theories of the atonement. Three major theories. There's the moral influence theory. Jesus died to, to demonstrate the love of God. There's substitutionary atonement. Jesus died to pay for our sins. And then there's Christus Victor, which we haven't talked about yet. Jesus died to defeat the powers of death and Satan. Now, class, which of these theories is correct? Which of these three three theories is correct? And the answer is they're all correct. They're all correct. Jesus died to save us from our sins. And Jesus died to defeat the power of evil and rescue us from its bondage. And Jesus died to show us the love of God. These are not competing theories. These are complementary truths. Don't you understand? And we need all of them to understand the greatness and the majesty of the cross. What Jesus did for us on the cross is so inexhaustibly rich that we can spend all of eternity looking into it, thinking about it, studying it, unpacking its truth, and we will never, ever get to the bottom of it. That our holy creator God laid down his life to save vile sinners like you and me because he loves us. It's a stunning truth. So that's the first thing. It's a meal of death. Secondly, it's a meal we eat. So this meal is a dramatization of his death. But notice, Jesus does not perform the drama with his disciples just sitting there watching him doing it. But the drama includes the disciples so that they are not just spectators, but they are participants in it. Think about that. Do you understand the deep theology of what that is saying? It is not enough to passively acknowledge that Jesus died for us, but we have to actively take possession of his death into our lives. And this is represented, this is symbolized by the act of eating. 
Think about the metaphor of eating. It's a very intimate act, right? You take food that is outside of you, you put it into your mouth, and it goes into you, it nourishes you, it gives you life, it becomes a part of you. And that helps us to understand what Jesus means when he says, remember me. He says, do this in remembrance of me. He says it in verse 24 and again in verse 25. Now, unfortunately, the English word remember is kind of weak and it's lost a lot of its power because in the modern usage of English, remember means to recall facts. It's a purely mental exercise. But the word remember in the Bible is a much more powerful thing. So, for example, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, the word remember is zakar. And zakar includes both thought and action. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, the text says, God remembered, it's the word zakar, God remembered Noah in the ark. Now, that doesn't mean God said, Oh my goodness, I forgot all about Noah. I left him there stranded in the water. No, it means that God actively focused his thoughts on Noah and on his promise that he had made to Noah and he acted in accordance with those promises and he rescued Noah. Or, for example, you have um, Genesis chapter uh, 30, verse 22. The text says, God remembered Rachel. And the text says, and he listened to her, and he opened her womb. So to remember the body and the blood of Christ is not just to acknowledge intellectually that Jesus died for you, but it's to take the truth of that and to act upon it. It's to take the truth of that and weave it into your heart and into your life. And that actually brings us pretty close to the Old English definition of remember. In Old English, the opposite of remember is not forget. It's dismember. What is dismember? We're talking about fingers and hands and limbs Because dismember means to tear a body apart. Because the word member means body part. And therefore, remember doesn't mean um, to recall. It means to graft. It means to attach, to sew, to fuse two body parts together. And so to eat and drink the body of Christ is not just to think about Jesus. It's not like you're holding a forget-me-not flower and you're plucking the petals and you're saying, ah, I remember Jesus. No, it's to take what he did for you and it's to fuse it into your soul. It's to sow it onto your heart and into your consciousness. Now, how do you actually do that? Let me share with you a story. Johnny Erickson Tata is a Christian writer. And um, when she was 17 years old, she describes herself as being athletic, full of life and promise, college-bound. But the summer before college, 
she went out to the lake with her friends. And she swam out to this raft floating in the lake. And then she says she foolishly dived from it into what she discovered was very shallow water. Her head snapped back. She severed her spinal cord. And as a result, she became a quadriplegic. She became paralyzed from the neck down. She lost the use of her legs and arms. And she says that those first months in the hospital were really, really tough. She went through a series of surgeries and procedures. And through the whole ordeal, she kept telling herself, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay because God is going to heal me. She had grown up in a devout Christian home. She went to church all of her life. But she says her relationship with God, the the way she thought of God was as this benevolent grandfather who would give her good things when she asked for them. And so her prayers were filled with things like, can you make me thinner? Can you give me a boyfriend? And she says that she had a very shallow faith, a very shallow understanding and relationship with God. And so she was just convinced God would heal her. But then as the months rolled on, and as she lay there in the hospital, she said she went through these intense bouts of claustrophobia because she felt like she was trapped in her own body. And as her circumstances remained unchanged, she began to question what sort of God would do this to me. And she sank into a deep depression. David Brooks, who is one of my favorite writers, he wrote a book called The Second Mountain. And in the book, he has this quote on suffering that I just love. Listen to this. David Brooks says, Suffering upsets the normal patterns of life and reminds you that you are not who you thought you were. Suffering smashes through the floor of what you thought was the basement of your soul and reveals a cavity below. And then it smashes through that floor and reveals a cavity below that. What he's saying is that suffering strips away all the little comforts in your life that you've used so that you don't have to think about your life in a very deep way. You see, in the hospital, Johnny Erickson Tata was stripped bare. And you know what saved her? Discovering a robust theology of the sovereignty of God. What happened, it's kind of a crazy story, what happened is somebody in her church gave her a copy of Lorraine Bettner's the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. The book is just like it sounds. It's a thick theological tome, very dense reading. But Johnny Harrison taught her she was desperate. She wanted to understand what's going on. So she read, and she read, and she read. She read the book cover to cover. She read it over many times. And she says what she discovered through the book a great God who is so big and he's not powerless over her situation 
he's not negligent, but because he loves her. Because he loves her, he allowed, he permitted this terrible accident to happen in her life so that he could draw her close to his heart so that she could experience his power and his grace. And she says that truth saved her life. I know it's a rather intense experience, intense story that I'm sharing, but I want you to know that is what it means to take the death of Christ, to take the love of God, not as some abstract truth, not as some mental concept, but to actually take it in so that it matters, so that it becomes real to you, so that it becomes this bright and shining thing, so that it becomes this thing of surpassing worth, more precious to you than anything else in this life, more precious than your family, than your job, than even your health. I want you to know it is a serious thing to eat and drink the body of Christ. Do you know what you're doing when you come to the table? Third point, a meal we eat together. So, the Lord's table is a communal meal. And you see that when Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Now, unfortunately for us in the English language, we don't distinguish between the plural and singular versions of the second person pronoun. But in the Greek, it's very clear, very precise. And what Jesus is saying, therefore, if I could translate it a little bit better, is this is my body, which is for you you all. You could only take this meal, therefore, as a church gathered together. And this is supported also in the context. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in its entirety, Paul is, is rebuking the Corinthian church because they were not eating the table in a unified way together. And I also want you to know that not only is this meal a communal, but it is a very intimate meal in the way it's communal. In the ancient world, to eat with someone was a deeply personal, relational, intimate act, especially when you take into account the posture of eating. What do I mean by this? So with all due respect to Leonardo da Vinci and his famous painting of The Last Supper, and the way he depicts it is the Western style of eating. Everyone is seated, uh, sit, sitting at chairs. There's a table, so that everyone is sort of, you know, spread out. You have to respect personal space, of course. But that's the Western way, the modern Western way of eating. In the ancient world, in the Mediterranean world, okay, first of all, when you eat with someone, you don't sit on a chair. You lay down on the floor on a mat with your feet radiating out. 
Because in the ancient world, everyone wore sandals on dusty roads. Your feet is the most disgusting part of you. You want to keep your feet as far away from the food as possible. And so you're sitting in this very close circle, leaning on one arm, and you're reaching in to a common bowl, a common dish, um, because they ate family style. And you sit in this very close circle, and you can imagine, therefore, right, you're face to face. It's a very intimate way to eat a meal. And Jesus says, we're not supposed to do this just once. We're supposed to be doing this as a church, as the gathered church, together all the time on a regular basis. What is this telling us? It's telling us the importance of community, of building relationships, of creating this thick web of friendships, not superficial friendships, but deep friendships, where you're involved in each other's life. You know exactly what's going on in other believers, and that's the church. That's the portrait of the church that Jesus gives us. Now, I want to say something I think that is rather bold. I think when we do that as a church, we are doing something that is radical and countercultural in the society that we live in right now. One of the books that I read over this summer that really had an impact on me, I mean, everyone around me got an earful, right? Because it was, it was so, like, so amazing, was a book um, by Gene Twingy called iGen. As I was reading this book, it was like my hair was on fire. And Jean Twingy is a sociologist, and she studies generational change. She studies differences in generations. And um, she's an expert on um, Gen X. She's written several articles on Gen X, on uh, the millennials. She wrote a book about the millennials called Generation Me. She's talking about the narcissism there. Um, and she wrote, her latest book is called iGen, about Generation Z, because they're the first generation to grow up with um, smartphones. And so Gen Z is the generation born after 1995. So this is the generation that is right now in high school, in college, and then in their early, the early half of their 20s. And Gene Twingy says there has never been a generation like this generation. Anxiety, depression, addictions, suicides, are just all completely through the roof. Did you know that just in the last 10 years, suicide rate for teenagers has shot up 70%. For teen girls, it's more than double. It is now the second leading cause of death for people who are under 30. The the number one cause of death is car accidents. So, So think about that a little bit. If you're a young person, the most likely reason if you die, the most likely reason you would die is because of a car accident. And the second most likely reason you would die is you would kill yourself. Not only suicides are way up, suicide attempts have skyrocketed. Suicide ideation, which means you're thinking about it, you're planning it, you're fantasizing, you're researching on the web how to kill yourself. Hospitalizations for self-harm, this is cutting, is way, way up. Drug-related deaths, this is the opioid crisis that we've all seen in the news, has more than doubled. And Gene Twingy says it's not just Gen Z. 
This is happening through all generations in the United States. It's happening to everybody, but it is especially acute. It is especially concentrated in Gen Z. They are the tip of the spear. And because of this epidemic of anxiety, depression, suicides, addictions, what are now being called deaths of despair, did you know that life expectancy in the United States has dropped for three years in a row. This is completely unprecedented. The last time this has happened, over 100 years ago, was 1915 through 1918. We were in the middle of the Spanish flu pandemic and World War I. And it's happening again now. And so what's going on? And there's been a flurry of articles examining this, looking at this. It's not because we're in the middle of some great war. It's not because we're going through an economic depression. In fact, the paradox of it is that there has never been a period where we have experienced more prosperity and wealth than right now. This is just objectively true. Let me just give you one tiny statistic about that. Did you know that home sizes have been steadily going up, bigger and bigger, so that the average home size, in terms of square footage, is nearly three times the size that it was in the 1950s. So we're living in these giant homes now, cavernous homes. We're just swimming in stuff, in vacations, in electronic devices. There has never been a a, a richer generation than our generation, particularly in the Bay Area, than now, and yet we are miserable. We're killing ourselves. What's the explanation? There's been a, a, a flurry of research. This is really the, the, the big thing going on in the United States right now. A lot of people are looking at this. And the answer is what is coinciding with these deaths of despair is this epidemic of loneliness. There's never been a culture like ours where people are more disconnected and more isolated from one another. In the 1950s, social scientists started asking this question in surveys. How many close friends do you have? Right? How many people can you confide and share your problems with and who really get you and understand what's going on in your life? In the 1950s, the average answer was five, five close friends. By the late 1980s, that number had dropped to three. And right now, the most common answer is zero. They did a separate survey of just Gen Z, and they asked Gen Z a different question. How many friends do you have? Not close friends, just friends. One-third of Gen Z said they had zero friends. Now, it could possibly be that that's a little bit of an exaggeration. How can you possibly have no friends? But this is how they feel. This is what people are going through. And particularly for young people, this sense of loneliness is amplified by technology and social media. So when you look at your Instagram feed, it just looks like everyone is out there having fun with their friends. But we know from time diary surveys that social interactions are way, way down. This is confirmed by all different kinds of studies. Social interactions, people just being with each other, hanging out with each other, it's just way, way down. It has plummeted. This is partially the reason why malls are shutting down. A big part of it is online shopping. (laughs) But the other part of the equation is that teenagers don't hang out in malls anymore. Um, I I, I recently watched Stranger Things in Netflix. And uh, it's about these teenagers in the 80s. 
And you know what really struck out to me as I was watching it? Is all the scenes of the mall. Man, the mall life was just so lively and vibrant, right? It was just... And that is exactly how I remember it, too. I grew up in the 80s. I remember the mall was the place to be. It's where you go to hang out with your friends. It's, it's where you just hang out with people. People, teenagers would just mill about doing nothing in the mall. That's not happening anymore. It's not because teenagers are congregating somewhere else. They're not going anywhere else. They're staying home. This is confirmed from Time Diary surveys, right? And so those of you who are in your 20s, what the Time Diaries show is that most young people at night, for the most part, you know what you guys are doing? You're home, in bed, watching Netflix on your phones. (laughs) But you look on social media and you see these curated lives and it just amplifies your sense of loneliness. It just gives you this terrible feeling that you're alone. I believe there is a sickness in our culture. You have radical individualism. No one can tell me what to do, how to live. You have this hyper-competitive economy. Everyone is hustling. Everyone I know is just killing themselves to make it in their jobs. And so everyone is separated. Everyone is just doing their own thing. And yet, there's this incredible hunger for connection. I was watching this interview with Steve Aoki. Um, Do you guys know who Steve Aoki is? He's a DJ. He's um, apparently a huge name in the world of electronic music. Um, I had no idea who Steve Aoki is, right? But I saw his uh, video, interview video on the Wall Street Journal, and the description said he's paid $500,000 per night for doing his job. And I was like, what? How can you pay $500,000? You just pick a song list and push play, right? Like, how can that be worth that much money? So I watched the video. And first of all, Steve Aoki is incredibly talented. And he throws these incredible parties. Thousands of young people going. And they're thronging. The crowds are thronging. And the music is pulsating. And there's incredible energy and vibrancy there. And in another interview, somebody asked them, why do people go to your concert? Why, why are so many people trying to, to, to see you perform? And do you know what he said? He said, everyone wants to be fused together. He said, people just want this experience of fusion. And through the music and through the atmosphere and no doubt through the drugs probably, right? (laughs) You, as the music is playing, you lose the sense of self and you experience merger. You experience this deep oneness but it only lasts for a moment. And then it's gone like vapor. When you look at the portrait of the early church, what do you see? You see this intense, deep community. Let me read to you Acts chapter 2, verses 46 through 47. Listen to what the early Christians were doing. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food 
with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I want you to notice that they were doing this day after day after day. They were doing this every day. They were gathering together in the temple, in each other's homes. They were doing this constantly. They were doing this relentlessly because they loved being together. They couldn't get enough of each other. They were hungry for each other. How did this happen? I want you to know that the gospel is not just a vertical relationship. The gospel is not just reconciliation with God. It is reconciliation with each other. And so the gospel has horizontal ramifications. The gospel has horizontal implications. And what that means, therefore, is that if you follow Christ and you meet someone from a different ethnicity, you meet someone from a different socioeconomic background or different politics, gasp, and you have nothing else in common, you have nothing to talk about, nothing to share, but that person is a follower of Jesus Christ. He loves Jesus And you love Jesus. And you know what that means? You can call him brother and sister. Because there's this instant kinship that is deeper than blood because the gospel creates a new family that supersedes even your biological family. A new community. A new people. And so what Christianity is doing, it's reweaving the social fabric It's creating this new social reality where we are being fused together like body parts into one body. The head is Jesus Christ. I want you to know that this table is a dim preview of the final reality. In verse 26, Jesus says, For for as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One day, the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And we will feast in his presence. It's going to be an incredible party. Well-aged wine. Marrow, rich marrow. Wade is going to have a blast. (laughs) And we're going to be with our brothers and sisters forever and ever and ever. And we're practicing. It's a little bit of a stage rehearsal. It's not the full production, not the full show. But we're getting ready for the real thing. 